the chapters 34 and 35 bring to an end what was begun in Isaiah 13, um, where the great question was, can God really be trusted? And you think, why, why do we need to study a passage like this? We know that God can be trusted. That's true and not true, because there are things that I have trouble trusting God for. Yes or no? That's my problem, not his. But think about your whole national identity and everything that, you're, that you've tied yourself up with, all your security, everything, safety, life, everything is on the line here. Can God really be trusted? And the answer that Isaiah has been giving since chapter 13, and, and we'll come to the climax of it in 34 and 35, after um, Christmas, after New Year's, we'll come back eventually to this. I'll, I'll do some things about attributes of God when we come back in January. But uh, we'll come back to, when we come back to Isaiah to 36 to 39. Um, as I have read through this material, studied through it, I'm also reading Jeremiah now in, uh, for, for a variety of reasons. But as I'm reading these prophets, I think all these promises are nice, but Father, when are you going to ever fulfill them? Uh, he keeps promising, as we'll see today, he keeps promising hope to Israel beyond judgment. But when, Father, when? Yes? Uh, uh, the events of, uh, that we're reading about happened in the 8th century B.C. That's 28 centuries ago. That's a long time. So when? Will it be another thousand years? Will it be? And even, even for a professor at Dallas Seminary, I begin to think... Can I really take these promises seriously? Are, are you with me here? And, and the answer is yes. And chapter 36 is going to be part of the answer. We'll look, that, look at that after New Year's. <laughs> uh, but also what we sang about, what we enjoyed this morning, what we meditated on today is part of the answer too. Yes? But that was 2,000 years ago. It would help if we could get beyond time, wouldn't it? It would. Um, but we've been given, and I've, I've made this point before, you've heard this other places as well. Uh, Psalm 90 says, A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. So it's only two days since Jesus <laughs> went back to be with the Father. <laughs> And it's only less than three days since all of this event occurred on God's calendar. <laughs> yes? Uh, so, okay, Lord, I live so much in time, it's hard for me to sense the reality of these promises. And yet, he does things periodically that reinforce them. Uh, so, Isaiah 34 and 35, proph prophecies of future judgment and blessing. <clears throat> And first, chapter 34 talks about coming judgment. And it's coming judgment not for Judah, remarkably enough. 
So I start in this passage, verses 1 to 15, um, the Lord will destroy the nations. <laughs> What's interesting here is in the background of this passage is Assyria, but he hardly ever even mentions Assyria. The only nation he mentions is Edom. Uh, I have a colleague who says, is God really going to bring Edom back into existence in the last days? I got no problem with that. God can do whatever he jolly well pleases. He's, he's reconstituted Israel, yes, as a, as a national entity in our world. He can bring Edom back. But in the context, probably Edom, who has been a, a perennial enemy of Judah, throughout all the generations since the, the monarchy was established. Uh, uh, Edom is, is perhaps a symbol of all the nations, and that probably is the right way to read the chapter. So verses 1 to 15. Uh, Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it, for... It, the, the, what comes from the world? What springs up from it in, in Hebrew? For the Lord is, is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over to slaughter. Their slain will be cast out. The stench of their corpses will rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven Shall, not, uh, shall rot away. The host of heaven is probably a reference to all the, the um, gods of the nations. Um, 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 they're, they're God. Well, <clears throat> what have we read about the idols so far? They're made of wood. They're going to rot away. <laughs> uh, but there is, there's more behind that uh, since you asked the question the, um, Deuteronomy talks about God assigning, and, and don't, don't ask me for the passage. Uh, everything I know is either on a piece of paper or on the hard drive. Okay? And I, it would take me a time to find it. But Deuteronomy talks about God having assigned um, members of his divine council rule over each of the nations. Indeed, says he has assigned them, Deuteronomy says he has assigned them their gods. Strange idea. Uh, uh, so in Daniel you read about the, the um, angel of um, Greece and the angel of Persia. You remember this, yes? So you have that kind of language elsewhere and Deuteronomy is kind of the root for it. Um, Psalm 86, not 86, 80. Maybe it is 86. Um, the, the, the psalm that Jesus quotes when he said, I said you are gods, right? Uh, psalm 86 is probably talking to that group of, of beings, that they are rulers who have not done justice in the world and so forth. So he's going to judge them. So, so the gods are going to rot. Later in Isaiah 41 and following, there there. He starts on a series of satires on idolatry. They're, they're quite humorous. We can't laugh at them because this is the word of God. Amen? So we can't laugh at anything. <laughs> but, but when God is funny, we ought to laugh. And, 
God says, you, you, find, a, you find a piece of, of wood that will not rot, and you cut it up, and half of it you bake your bread on, and the other half you make into a god, and you nail it down so it won't totter. Because <laughs> you don't want your god rotting while you're praying to him, and you don't want him falling over while you're praying to him. Yes? So, uh, uh, yeah. There was a, there were two or three hands. Yeah, Rick. I was going to ask so to be clear. What in verse four, the host of heaven? You mentioned the prince of Persia. Or the prince. Yeah. Okay. So are you? Satan's called the prince of the power of the air. Yeah. So are you saying these authorities, these principalities, will will be under judgment? Yes. And the and the evidence of that on earth will be the rotting of their statues. Because you said the leaders of the nations, and yeah. you're referring to the demonic powers. Yes, behind. yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. There was another hand. Jen. Yeah. Okay. In America, we don't have images that we pray to. Yeah. Um, so, but we still commit idolatry because we don't yeah. trust in God. So, can you explain, well... Can you explain idolatry here? In well, yeah, it's what we've said on several occasions, and it bears repeating because idolatry is so ingrained in our minds as something having a statue, and you bow down and pray to a statue. But you don't have to have a statue. Uh, idolatry is um, man's expedient to try to secure his future. And so you do you whatever that expedient is that's going to give you security, and it has to be something you can manipulate. All right. So it's your wealth, or for for men a career, for um, everybody family. These are the things that are going to secure my future. Yes, and I can manipulate them. I can I can control them. The kind of God, though, that you can control is the kind of God that you don't want. Because the kind of God that you can control is not worth having. The only God that is worth having is a God that cannot be controlled. And he secures your future, but not in the way you want. (laughs) Because what you want, and this goes right back to Genesis chapter 3, when the woman saw that the the tree was desirable to the eyes... And, and um, good for food. But when she saw that it was desirable to make one wise, she chose the serpent's alternative to blessing rather than God's means of blessing, which was to refrain from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's definition of good and evil I cannot manipulate because he's creator, he's absolute, he gives absolute definitions. And I am obligated as a follower of the living God to, to adopt those definitions. But that entails further <clears throat> that his plan works at cross-purposes to my plan. Um, I had a, a, a great plan in 1969. I was going to marry Jan in the summer of '70. And I was going to teach at Cassidy School in Oklahoma City, and they were going to help me get my master's degree, and um, life was going to be good. And the Lord 
gave me the privilege of, <laughs> of <laughs> the letter that, that never came. I'm, I'm a draft dodger. I want you to realize that. I dodged the draft to keep from getting drafted into the Army in the Vietnam War. I, I dodged the draft by enlisting. They were going to draft me for two years. I taught them a great lesson. I enlisted for four. <laughs> Boy, I got their attention on that one. <laughs> but God's plan was better than my plan. And his plan was entirely different from my plan. But I thought life had just fallen apart. Are you with me here? But I've been fighting that all these years. Uh, my plan is my plan. This, Lord, is what you must bless. <laughs> and he pats me on the head and tell, says, you're a nice boy. Go play. <laughs> I, I got better things to do than talk to you about this silly plan of yours. <laughs> and then he works out his own plan. And his own plan is always much better. And when Sixto prayed about, I, I forget the exact language he used, but the, these non-entities that we are, that God has brought into his plan and made us something when we would have been nothing. I'm from Britain, Oklahoma. What, you've never even heard of that. Uh, and some of my classmates in elementary school are probably in prison because yeah. um, of the, the social setting in which I grew up. So how can I be here doing what I'm doing? except that the, in, in the mercy of God, he had a plan to take me away from all my plan to direct me in a different direction. The only plan that's worth involving myself in is the plan of God, and it's not hard to discover. You know the plan of God. You don't know necessarily your place in it, but God does, and so you need to quit worrying about it. Just get start pursuing what God is doing. And as you pursue what God is doing, he will direct you where he wants you to be. So this is the difference between what we do and what idolatry is. I, I have to, I have to con give up control. I have to give up the right to define good and evil and adopt entirely God's perspective on these things to pursue them. So... Um, all the, verse 4, all the host of heaven shall rot away. The skies will, be, will roll up like a scroll. All the hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Do you remember Jesus saying to the disciples when, they, when he sent them out? Do you recall this? He sent the 70 out and they came back and he said, I saw Satan falling from heaven. You remember this? Um we will see, in some sense, this same kind of reality. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. That, that expression, devoted to destruction, is what's used in Deuteronomy. Uh, in fact, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua to refer to what, God, what Israel must do to the Canaanites. Hmm? Yeah, put under the band. Yes, okay. This might not be relevant, but just recently learned that recent archaeological finds are now giving credence to the fact that Islam was born in Edom. Hmm. I found I'm that not interesting that. because Edom 
government sell offerings referred to in prophecy. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, you know, there, there's lots of different types of yeah. evidence. Right. I just found out about it. And huh. since we're reading about Edo, yeah. I thought, you know, that's interesting. Sure. Because they say that Muhammad actually grew up near Petra. Really? I did. I've not heard that. I saw another hand. I thought, yes, Terry. Heaven in four and heaven in five. Heaven in what realm? I don't know. <laughs> I've told you about. I've told you about how hard it was for me to learn to say I don't know. So I use it fairly frequently. <laughs> there was another hand. Yeah. I do, but I don't know everything. <laughs> I'm very nearly omniscient, but I'm not. <laughs> oh, there was a hand in the back. Yeah, yeah Fred. Probably. But they are they are often identified with stars in and they're yeah. often identified with astral objects. So yeah. Who who was that? Kathy, yes ma'am. Yes. It could be. What does thirty two eight say? Yes. Yes. That's precisely it. Um, I have a pen here, and I can't get to it. Yeah. Well, this is a, a fountain pen, and it doesn't work well with Bible paper. So, <laughs> drat. I'll get it out later. Yes, ma'am. Well, Hebrew is Tzvah Hashomayim. Well, okay. Host of heaven. Yeah. Host. The reason I'm confused is because usually we think of host of heaven as angels or God's followers, you know, and this is just the opposite. Yes. Yes. The word host refers to army. It's the very word that's used for the Israeli army today, Tzvah. I'm sorry, Derek. <laughs> yeah, so uh, interesting there in verse 4 where it says that the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. Yeah. And the sixth seal in Revelation says that the heavens shall be unrolled as a scroll. Yeah. Is there a lot of similarities there with the judgment? Probably. Um, something, I've forgotten the numbers now, 90% of the book of, of uh, Revelation has, 90% uh, of the verses in the book of Revelation have some allusion to the Old Testament. Uh, so you can hardly study the Old Testament. I'm sorry, study Revelation without studying the Old Testament. We're not going to get through Isaiah 34 and 30, uh, 33 and whatever it is this is we're reading here. Uh, uh, and it's not as essential that we get through this as that we dis get answer questions, but I'm, I'd like to get through it. <laughs> Verse uh, um, 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. 
and the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch. Her, her, that's pitch is not just goo. It's, it's like um, uh, burning lava. And her soil into sulfur. Her, her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it will not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall, he shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom. And it's all its princes are be nothing. Thorns will grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode of ostriches. And wild animals will meet with hyenas. The wild goat cry to his fellow. Indeed, there, uh, uh, there the night bird settles and finds for itself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Verse, we, verse uh, 16. Uh, here is the comment about Edom that I, I wanted to share. Um, again, John Oswald, <laughs> Brian. <laughs> um, why should Edom be used in this way? The answer is that throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis 25-23 to Malachi 1-2 and 3, Edom is treated as the antithesis of Israel, more so even than the Amalekites. Edom is uh, noted for attempting to block what God was doing for the world in his self-revelation to Israel. Thus, Edom was typical of those nations which insisted upon their own ways in opposition to God. Was this uh, uh, Esau's way to get even with his brother Jacob? I don't think that I can say it that specifically. It's I don't know what it is. You, you argue more with your family members than you do with anybody else. Yeah, because he was cheated out of his birthrights. Yeah, I, I I don't have any siblings, so I don't argue with my family members at all. Uh, Oswald continues. Already in the 700s, feeling against uh, uh, Edom ran high, and so you have these verses where you can go see Edom as an enemy. Edom may be specific, but also standing for all the nations. Um, This is gory and horrific. How can we, even this week in in class, we were in in, uh, Deuteronomy this week in class, uh, one of the students who is a veteran of the Gulf War and uh, uh, is a Marine staff sergeant. Uh, he, he spent eight or ten years in the Marines. Asked me, this is so terrible, how can we justify this? Two observations. One, we're dealing in talionic justice with these, with these passages. Talionic justice is a category that you know, and you know it well from Scripture, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, God exercises talionic justice as part of his justice against sinful humanity by giving them over to their sin and the destructiveness of it. 
so that they are punished in the very form of the sin that they, re- they have committed. Does this make sense to you? Um, so here, you, you need to understand that, that um, life is a gift and not a right because we are Americans, many of us are Americans, we were raised with the Declaration of, of Independence, and we have quoted, how many times in your life have you quoted? Um, we have the light to, uh, to, the, the light to life, the right to life, and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That they are endowed with their create, by their creator with the right to life. He may revoke that. And if you yourself have been brutal, he may do it in a brutal way. Do you follow this? Um, so we live with one who is a consuming fire. Do you not realize? This, this verse in Hebrews 12 is not written for the non-believer or the lost. It's written to the, to the church. Our God is a consuming fire. You, so, so the effect of that is either some provision must be made for all of us who have refused that appropriate relation, or the result is destruction. Not, not wreaked by a spiteful master ogre, but as the logical effect of our situation. Uh, and furthermore, you need to realize that in the ancient Near East, there were no rules of warfare. You did whatever. Psalm 137, 138, which is it? Yeah, may 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 their maybe their babies be dashed against a stone is what the psalmist prays. You almost never hear that read in church, <laughs> uh, but that's what the Babylonians did to Israel, and in Talionic justice, that's God's work for those whom He judges. Am I making sense to you? Um, and in my friend in class, the, the sergeant, the Marine sergeant, I said, every time you went into battle, and he did go into battle, every time you went into battle, you knew the rules of engagement. He said, absolutely. And you pressed them upon the men that you led. He said, absolutely. But there are no rules of engagement in the ancient Near Eastern practice of war. Uh, Oswald continues. When all is said and done, the prophet says, the issues are clear and rather simple. Arrogant, self-important humanity cannot accomplish what it desires. It aims to build a safe, prosperous life for its people, but ends in destruction. If God is life, then to cut oneself off from God is to cut oneself off from life. Um, God is to, I'm sorry, uh, reality is what God has made it. It's not what we have made it. The kingdoms of the earth want to create their own realities. But that severs them from God and thus from reality and from life. And when you cut yourself off from life, it cannot be other than gory and horrific. Glenn, I've put you off so long. Studying this passage over the last couple of weeks, the one thing that bothered me, which I'd like you to address, is if Edom in any way is talking about Edom, and 
Edom currently is pretty well destitute. It's destroyed. What bothers me is that the smoke shall descend forever. Yeah. Generation to generation, no one shall ever pass through it forever and ever. And it's talking about fire going mm -hmm. forever. Mm -hmm. And yet it's been destroyed, yeah. but it's not a place of continual fire. Yeah. Yeah, turn to Isaiah 66. The last, this is an unusual book in a lot of ways, but one of them is um, prophets usually end with a message of, of salvation, but not Isaiah. Um, verse 21, Isaiah 66, 21. And some of them also I will take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I made shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your, and your name remain from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who had rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence of all flesh. The evidence of God's wrath must remain. It must remain constant. Uh, folks, with, with whatever bit of wit God has given to me, I've tried to understand something of the purposes of God over the years. And I've been convinced, most, most in recent years, uh, most convinced, that the overall purpose of God in this creation is to reveal his grace. Okay? That, that's why sin is a part of the plan of God. He's using it to reveal his grace. Um, but if all God did in this creation was reveal grace we wouldn't still know what grace was because we wouldn't know what we deserved. So there must be a concurrent revelation of the wrath of God. And by the way, the word revelation there is essential to, to this whole discussion. There must be a revelation of the wrath of God in justice and not simply separated so that none of us ever observes it. It must be as... as the everlasting revelation of the grace of God is tied up with us. The, the everlasting wrath of God must be shown toward the sin that we have committed. Jesus has paid our penalty, but thousands of others have sinned just like I have. And they are experiencing ju a judgment. And that revelation goes on because the character of God is the one thing that must be vindicated in all that he does. So uh, the, the uh, everlasting revelation of judgment. I don't know whether that's even answering your question, brother. I've answered the question I wanted to answer. Did I answer yours? <laughs> well, eternally visible is supposed to be your judgment, but more specifically in fire. Yes. Yeah. And, and I don't think even 
not yet. So it's still, still to come. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. I think so. I think we will. I don't know. Uh, I say on, on eschatology. I say about. I say I don't know about as often as I say what I think I know. Uh, we were talking about just glimpses of God's grace or mercy or revelation. Wouldn't that be true of glimpses of His judgment? Oh yeah. So we're constantly seeing. Yeah. We're getting little anticipations of it, but yeah, that's right. Whether that's in political leaders or whoever, whatever, national catastrophe. Absolutely. Any and all of that. Uh, This is a a rather long quotation. I'm not going to belabor it today for time's sake. It's from a, a, a Canaanite poem about the goddess Anat. And her wonderful, this wonderful goddess, Anat, who is the virgin, holy virgin, who loves slaughtering her own worshipers. You get a little flavor, so some of you are taking pictures of that. That's, there's a second one as well. Uh, um, so it's way too long to read, and it's just not very uplifting. But she just, this is, this is the... The kind of God created man in his own image, and man has returned the favor. So brutal people have brutal gods. A gracious God cannot come from brutal people. The the gracious God must exist by himself. We can't create a gracious God. So, verses um, verses sixteen and seventeen, the Lord's uh, uh, the, the Lord's people thus avenged will possess their their land forever. So, seek and read in the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. I there's some discussion about what the book of the Lord is. You would say, well, it's isn't it the Bible, but the Bible didn't exist when Isaiah was writing. So. Uh, what is it talking about? Is it the, the prophecy of Isaiah? That's probably as close as I can get to it, given the context, the importance of how God keeps saying, now, the, or, or the book says, the Lord said to, spoke to Isaiah saying. So maybe this is the book of Isaiah, or it may be the plan of God that all of these judgments will come to pass. Uh, so seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None none shall be without her mate, for the mouth of the Lord has commanded, uh, and the Spirit has gathered them. These are going to come to pass. You ask, but Edom is not now a burning waste. But it's going to come to pass. Verse 17, he has cast the lot for them. His hand has Portioned out, portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever, from generation to generation. They shall dwell in it. And here, finally, the language of verse seventeen turns to Israel, and affirms that just just as they did in the days of uh, Moses and Joshua, they went in and surveyed the land to find out what the boundaries would be. 
so God has surveyed the land now for Israel, and he has, he has determined their, their habitation. It will come to pass. Chapter 34, 5 then, very short, only eight verses. We can go through this fairly quickly. The land will be, uh, uh, just as Edom is abundantly destroyed, Israel will abundantly be restored. So 1 and 2, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert, the judgment that God brought on Israel is going to be reversed. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The glory of Lebanon, the great forests and the majestic mountains of, of, of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. Sharon is the great breadbasket of, of the southern part of Israel. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Verses 3. Effectively, we are talking about another, a, a new exodus. This is a theme that comes back in, in what scholars call second Isaiah, Isaiah 40 and following. Comes back, and Isaiah is always going back to the old salvation to, to show you what the pattern of the new salvation will be like. All right? Are you with me here? Mm-hmm. So we're, we're looking to this, this new exodus. Isaiah is going to be much more specific about it in the latter part of his book. He's going to make a highway in the desert, and he's going to cause streams to flow in the desert. All the animals will rejoice because of the streams in the desert. Deborah? Oh, I like the um, use of the word crocus. Yeah. The flower that uh, uh, blooms at the end of winter. Ah. Okay. Uh, don't don't get too excited about the flower names because we don't know for sure what they are. <laughs> but it is interesting, yeah. Um, so so all we have is post biblical Hebrew, and we don't know what biblical Hebrew referred to by these things. So don't get too excited about these these names. But um, uh, then verses three and four, the Lord's promise encourages His people with their coming vindication. If you're encouraging Israel with their coming vindication, when, Lord, then will you do it? When are you going to bring this to pass? So verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Verses 5 and 6. Or rather, 5 to 7, the Lord will work miraculous changes in both people and in creation. Then the eyes of the blind, does this sound familiar? Then the eyes of the blind, of course this is quoted by Handel um, in, the, uh, uh, in the Messiah. I can't, hear, I can't read this verse without the music going through my mind. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. But you don't want to hear me sing. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, as, as the King James says. Then the, the, shall the lame man leap like a deer. Does that sound familiar at all? How about Acts chapter 3? Yeah. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. What was judgment for Edom? is reversed for Israel. And the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass will become reeds and rushes. 
In verses 8 to 10 then, the redeemed remnant will return to Zion, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called a highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. And by the way, there are some fundamentally difficult translational problems here, and your translation may read something different. I, I can't solve all the problems. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any nerve at ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. The, the redeemed, the ge'ulim in Hebrew, these are the people for whom God acts as the goel. Do you know the word goel, G-O-E-L? Oh, I'm surprised. Um, we usually talk about it in the book of Ruth. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. God acts as a kinsman redeemer for Israel. Isn't that beautiful? Um, the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And There's another song here. Then shall the redeemed of the Lord <laughs> come with joy. Um, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They shall ob- obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. <coughs> but when, God? As I've been studying this the last week or so, I, I, it just... Is a burden on my soul. When for Israel? When? And part of the answer is Isaiah 36. But we've come to the end of a key passage. um, The end of the Holy Holy Way, Zion. Let me move on here. We've come to the end of this very long passage, 13 to 35 now. And I want to go back and review. We have just a minute or two to do it. Uh, 13 to 33 emphasizes God's lordship over all the nations and each of them. 24 to 27, God is not merely the reactor to the nations, but is in fact a sovereign actor on the world stage. In 24 to 27, that was that what we call the apocalypse of Isaiah, where he comes in and brings judgment and salvation Then 28 to 33, the superiority of God's counsel. Israel is constantly inclined to trust the nations or fear the nations. The one thing they must fear and the one thing they must trust is the Lord. And God as the sole actor, the only sovereign actor in the whole event, shows himself to be trustworthy in chapter 36. But chapters 28 to 33 have been emphasizing in the six woes that we talked about the folly of fearing Assyria, the folly of trusting Egypt. The only thing that can give stability for Israel is that they trust in the Lord. And finally now 34 and 35, the ultimate result of the two courses of action. If you persist in your trusting in the nations, you will end up like Edom. But the Lord has a plan, and for those who trust him, the plan will end in deliverance. Um, The last two chapters show the ultimate results of the two courses of action, with chapter 35 ending exactly at the same point as chapters 11 and 12. 
that is right before the section we've just been coming working through. Uh, with the promise that God can and will redeem, He may be trusted. Um, however, the issue remains, Oswald says, is this merely abstraction or can it become concrete reality? Ahaz had proved that the nations cannot be trusted. But what of God? Can his trustworthiness be demonstrated or only asserted? Must his promises for the distant future be clung to blindly? Or can an earnest of their reality be experienced now? And for the book of Isaiah, the answer is yes. It's concrete reality and you can experience it now. Because chapter 36, see, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wise things most people don't know. And following chapter 35 is chapter 36. You can see how wise that is, no doubt. <sighs> but in chapter 36, he brings Judah to the last extremity. They are besieged by the Assyrian army, the, uh, the unstoppable Assyrian army. And the king of Assyria gives evidence that there is nothing to trust in. Nothing on earth, nothing in heaven to trust in. And he did pretty well until he got into chapter 37. Don't trust in the Lord. Have any of the other gods saved their cities? Then how will the Lord save your city? <laughs> so, so in Isaiah's own day, there is an immediate, concrete evidence that, yes, God can be trusted. God, these are not abstractions. This is not talking about the path of the soul to heaven. It's talking about realities to be lived here on earth. I can trust God. He may delay. The, the good news in delay is when he delays, he gives opportunity for more repentance among the lost. But the bad news in his delay is that the delay brings harsher judgment to the wicked. And delay is what God, what, what Israel, Judah, charged God with back in Isaiah 8. Let him do something. He's not done anything. What's he done? He may delay, but when his delay is over, it will be perfectly timed to show his greatness and the wisdom of those who put all their confidence in him. And not only do we have Isaiah 36 and 37, we have 38 and 39 where Hezekiah is healed of a, of a deathly illness. But more importantly for our time of year, we have the coming of our Lord Jesus. And he will come in the same manner that you saw him depart. He's delayed, but it's only been two days. <laughs> our life has been a whisper in the midst of that two days but it's only been two days then cling to the Lord no matter the cost 
Let's pray. Father, for Israel's sake, I weep. Will you not save them soon? All the work that you've done for them has been faithful. But now since 586 BC, they've been wandering as you told them they would wander with no rest for the sole of their feet. And every night they would say, oh, that it were morning. And every morning they'd say, oh, that it were night. They've been wandering and longing for your deliverance. But you promised them in Hosea that you would treat them the way Hosea treated his wife. In chapter 3, that you would live together, but you would be estranged. When will you end that estrangement for them? Thank you that though we are mere Gentiles, separated from the covenants of Israel, aliens to the commonwealth of Israel. You have made us your children. You've done this for us. Will you not act for them as well? Thank you for the coming of our Lord Jesus. Thank you for this season in which we celebrate the glory of that time. But as you have acted gloriously in his life and in the history of the church all these centuries since he went back to be with you in heaven. Will you not send him soon and let us rejoice in the salvation that he will bring, not solely to us, not solely to Israel, but to all the world. For Jesus' sake, therefore, we pray. Amen. Amen. He turns the mic. Professor? Yes, sir. <laughs> How do you fit Acts uh, 